Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. I click the thing, so that means we're doing the thing. It's time to do the thing. It is. Yep. Things get done. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, wonderful people. Oh, they're wonderful this yep. week. Last week they were beautiful. Yeah, because Marilyn Manson sued us yeah, for uh, plagiarism. Yeah, he did. And so now, the wonderful people, the wonderful people. Yeah, the so we just switched people, a word around, but we're people. still using the same tune. It's fine. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. I'm numb. Yummy. Delicious. Delicious. This is episode 88 and another away game. Well, it's kind of like Infinity Infinity. Two eights next to each other. Now, very lucky if you're uh, an Asian person, apparently. Eights oh. are. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. so we got two of them. Yep. Woo! So a lucky show we have. You're damn right. This week, we're hopping in Doc Brown's Time and Space Warping DeLorean. <laughs> And heading back to Edinburgh, Scotland, in the early 1800s. The land of my people. The land of your peeps. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, that uh, that really sounded like time travel there. <laughs> I just like, feel like I'm, we're actually there. I'm disoriented, I could which s- is not unusual for me. My phone's not working. Yeah. <laughs> but the, re- <laughs> the iMac is. Oh, yeah, recording. Yeah, it was a good try. It was. It was a good good attempt. Anatomist Dr. Robert Knox, in need of bodies for dissection at a private anatomy school in Surgeon's Square, Edinburgh, Scotland, bought 16 corpses, Hmm. 12 women, 3 men, and 1 child from profit-driven serial killers William Burke and William Hare over a period of just 10 months in 1828. What? That's okay. You bought corpses. Sixty years before Jack the Ripper, these two murdered more than a dozen people for profit. 
These are the macabre crimes of Burke and Hare. First, a little bit about the era that led Burke and Hare, two psychopathic and opportunistic murderers, to commit these horrible crimes. According to Yale University's Dr. Heinrich von Staden, in 1992, in his publication, The Discovery of the Body, Human Dissection and Its Cultural Context in Ancient Greece. I've read that like four times. Four times? Four times. In the 3rd century BC, scientists Herophilus of Chalcedon and Erastrasus of Ceos were the first ever recorded scientists who had dissected human bodies for research. With names like that, you can do whatever the hell you want. Up until that point, Von Staden said, quote, religious, moral, and aesthetic taboos, as well as their psychological concomitants, inhibited practically all ancient and medieval physicians from opening the human body for anatomical purposes. Hmm. So it was taboo. It was a, it was give you bad juju. Well, I, you know, when you think about it, history up until that point, if that's not being done, like, do you want to be the like I first can, guy to do it? Yeah, I mean, you would feel like, oh, geez, this is wrong. I'm cutting yeah. into a, per, you know, cutting into the corpse of a recently departed human being was seen as immoral and disgusting. I, yeah, I get it. The timing and social climate, due to a thirst for knowledge, overcame the taboos of Greek culture. But these two were also the last scientists in ancient times to perform dissections of human bodies. After this brief period, scientists went back to the dissection of animals as their primary source of anatomical knowledge until 15 centuries later. Holy crackers. Uh, from Sanjeev Kumar Ghosh's publication on human cadaveric dissection. Exactly. The Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, from 1194 to 1250, took significant measures toward the progress of science which reflected his free-thinking outlook. In 1231, he issued a decree which mandated that a human body should be dissected at least once every five years for anatomical studies and attendance was made compulsory for everyone who was to practice medicine or surgery. Well, how the hell would everyone End get quote. to that one location? But No, no, they, what are you talking about? Say everyone must attend. The at least one dissection every five years. Yeah, it's crazy though. Like what? Like it wouldn't be in one place, you silly nerd. <laughs> Don't tell me. Don't tell me how to dissect. All right, but it's just it's crazy that like it's only once every five years that this is happening. That they that it's for for sure thing. Well, yeah. I don't know if doctors do that now. If you think about it, because I can just look in a book. <laughs> From that developed the modern science of anatomy and a need for bodies to study. Not many people wanted to have their bodies carved up after death, nor did families ever agree to such a horrific thing to happen to the body of a recently deceased loved one. It's in my will. The, it is? Yeah, cut me up. Oh. The attitudes created a shortage in study materials for medical school attendees, which was peaking in the 18th and 19th centuries as modern medicine was coming into its own. Hmm. If there's a need, a supply will emerge. True. There were laws in place to have the corpses of executed criminals given to medical schools, but as that number was outstripped by the demand, there had to be other ways to obtain the necessary supply of fresh corpses. In some cases, mm -hmm. this came by the way of grave robbers. I see where this is going. Grave robbing had been around for eons. 
Just look at the fuss that was made in 1922 when Howard Carter discovered the intact burial chambers of the ancient Egyptian boy pharaoh Tutankhamun, complete with its priceless golden artifacts. Most of the other kings and queens of ancient Egypt had had their grave sites plundered by grave robbers seeking the riches they knew were buried with the regents to be enjoyed in the afterlife. Yep. So it was a big deal when they found one intact. Yeah, a huge deal. Still is. It was only the trinkets and baubles that grave robbers were after. Often the mummified bodies were disrespectfully torn apart during the search for more riches. The corpses were unimportant. Mm -hmm. Grave robbers from the 18th and 19th centuries who became known as body snatchers or resurrectionists did take jewelry or trinkets buried with their targets, but their real interests were in the bodies themselves. They were a valuable asset, selling for as much as 4 to 10 pounds to medical schools, like that of Dr. Knox in Edinburgh, and often without question about where they'd been obtained. Hmm. Yeah, some morality issues already arising yes one resurrectionist joseph naples kept a diary dating from 1811 to 1812 that is accessible online thanks to the gutenberg project site and it's called the diary of a resurrectionist here's a few of the entries from his diary and the place names are local cemeteries so if he says i went to such and such it's a local cemetery quote Thursday, December 12, 1811. I went up to Brooks and Wilson. Afterwards, me, Bill, and Daniel went to Benthol Green. Got two. Jack, Ben, went, got two large and one small back at St. Luke's. Came home afterwards, met again, and went to Bunhill Row. Got six. One of them, named Mary Rolfe, age 46, died 5th. December 1811, so it was only a seven-day-old corpse. Yeah. The fresher, the better. Well, I, of course. Further on, Wednesday, January 8th, 1812. At 2 a.m., got up. The party went to Harps, got four adults and one small, took four to St. Thomas, came home, and went to Mr. Wilson and Brooks. Daniel got paid eight pounds, eight, uh, eight shillings, from Mr. Wilson, I received nine pounds, nine shillings from Mr. Brooks, came over to the borough and sold small for one pound, ten shillings, received four pounds, four shillings for adult at home all night. <sighs> so first off, we should, our band name should be the Resurrectionists. There's probably a band with that well, name already. There, if there isn't, there should be. Yeah. And you know, like... This is going to sound terrible, but I'm not as uncomfortable with what I'm hearing so far because, like, don't steal corpses. Like, it's terrible, but at least, you know. The people are gone. The people are gone. It's disrespectful yeah. to the families, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm not like, hang them. No. But you will be soon. But it's, it's, it is weird, though, hearing them talk about, like. Just so just matter like, of it's fact. It's like you like just selling two large and one small. When they say small, you know they're talking about a child. Y yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's disturbing. It, the way they're the way they're discussing it just sounds like they're you know um, uh, selling bourbon or something. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. just it's just accounting. Yeah. Yeah. It's very odd. Uh, the practice was so widespread and lucrative that relatives of the recently deceased demanded security for the corpses of their loved ones. Not only 
including around-the-clock security presence at some cemeteries, but other bizarre means as well. Mm. Reusable mort safes were invented to repel would-be body snatchers. <laughs> From Wikipedia, quote, The mort safe was invented about 1816. These were iron or iron and stone devices of great weight in many different designs. Often they were complex, heavy iron contraptions of rods and plates padlocked together. Examples have been found close to all Scottish medical schools. Mm -hmm. A plate was placed over the coffin and rods with heads were pushed through the holes in it. The rods were kept in place by locking a second plate over the first to form extremely heavy protection. It would be removed by two people with keys. They were placed over the coffins for about six weeks and then removed for further use when the body inside was sufficiently decayed, end quote. What an interesting time that was. <laughs> right? <laughs> the fact to... that you have to create this thing like, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to put this cage over your loved one's um, remains, remains uh, over their grave just for about six weeks until we're sure that they've moldered away enough that the resurrectionists won't find them valuable anymore. Like such a bizarre little moment in time mm -hmm. where you have to buy a safe for your corpse. Well, not for your own corpse. Well, you could. I, I mean, guess you, you would you maybe put that in your will that I need a mort safe. But like that, that you, when I say you, I mean like family, people have to buy. Oh, shit. Oh, I got to, Mike's passed away. I don't want anybody stealing them. Yep. Some people thought that mort safes were to keep the bodies in like they were for vampires or something. Oh like my that. God. I would imagine if, if I was like when the human race is gone and mm -hmm. some new being comes and starts to like excavate and like, yeah, that's totally what I'd think if I came across like this chained well, up and everything. Uh, you'd be like, oh my God, what was in here? Well, I've seen some writing on the internet in regard to them and people do actually think that they were for vampires. But anyway. Mm, of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, takes all kinds. It does. Some cemeteries had booby traps placed to the freshest grave sites, like trip wires with a shotgun attached. Oh my God. Like seriously. Wow. Even some of the coffins themselves were booby trapped. From an article on body snatchers on the Mental Floss website, quote, in 19th century America, several devices to booby trap individual graves were patented, such as the grave torpedo, <laughs> which operated like a landmine and a gun placed inside the coffin, set to blast away at anyone who raised the lid, end quote. Holy crap. <laughs> Yikes. Wow. <laughs> yep. There's probably still loaded firearms in some, yeah, probably Caskets. in some casket. Yeah. And, uh, Hope they never have to exhume. Or, or you know, archaeologists find it. Oh, dear. <laughs> what happened to Dr. Robinson, Will? <laughs> he was using his trowel to dig up a corpse in, in, uh, in an old Scottish cemetery, and the, the dead person shot him. <laughs> exactly. Just lying in wait for this moment. Oh, boy. Sneaky zombies. Sneaky zombies. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's like that's the other thing too. Like, essentially, if zombies do happen, you're arming zombies, right? Like, they bet you they didn't think of that. So you come out of the grave like with a gun. Fantastic. This is you see, they didn't think about that, did they? No. no. Anyways, continue, Mike. 
Contrary to popular mythology, Burke and Hare were not grave-robbing resurrectionists. They were, in fact, serial killers. Oh. It was the corpses of their recently deceased victims that they sold to medical schools. So now I want to hang them. According to author Lisa Rosner's wonderfully detailed book on the case of Burke and Hare called The Anatomy Murders, many writers, including Edgar Allan Poe, were inspired to tell stories of grave robbing. Hmm. Quote, Robert Louis Stevenson drew on the murders in his short story masterpiece, The Body Snatcher. The playwright and surgeon, James Bridie, took up the murders in his 1931 play, The Anatomist, and more recently, Burke and Hare had a cameo role in Ian Rankin's Flesh Market Close, end quote. Hmm. Uh, the backgrounds of Burke and Hare are a bit sketchy. Uh, we've used quite a bit from the 1884 book, The History of Burke and Hare and of the Resurrectionist Times by George McGregor. So I actually found a book from 1884. Holy crap. Thanks, thanks to uh, archive.org. Oh, wow. Oh, so it is uh, online? Yeah. So you didn't get like this yeah. I just book where you open it and dust? <laughs> no, I would have loved that, but uh, no, I did not. According to McGregor, William Burke, the supposed leader of the pair, was born in the northern part of Ireland in 1792 in a small town called Ernie. It, it's, that's not like Ernie and Bert. It's U-R-N-E-Y <laughs> yeah. in the county of Tyrone. He was the son of an Irish laborer and his wife. Even though both of his parents were Catholic, after a few years of schooling, he went on to work as the servant of a Presbyterian minister. Sure, why not? That wasn't looked on that kindly at the time, though. He went rogue. Yeah. He went on to try his hand as a baker, a cobbler, and also a weaver, but these didn't suit him either. He became a fifer, which is someone who plays the flute, in the militia and was known to play the flute later in life. He became a servant to one of the officers in the regiment and soon married a woman from Bellina to the west. They quickly had two children. Burke had his eye on money and a station in life much higher than the one he had. Mm -hmm. When his wife's father refused to give him a piece of his land, Burke left his family behind and emigrated to Scotland in 1817. That was a bit of a dick move. He was he was 25. Yeah, like Jeez. See you later. I so, Oh, I'm not getting land? Yeah, your dad's not going to give me anything. Peace out. Peace out and he, you and the kids can stay here. Jeez. I bet you they got the land though. I'm pretty certain they probably would. That's right. Burke met a woman named Helen McDougall, a widow living in Madison with her children, a girl and a boy. McDougall's husband had recently died of typhus. Living was tough for a widowed woman at the time, and Helen saw Burke as a godsend, even if he was still married. Burke moved in with Helen, a, a scandalous act at the time, and the gossip flew. Uh -oh. The Catholic Church didn't like it much either. After refusing to go home to his wife and kids, Burke was excommunicated by the church. Yeah, that'll happen. Uh, this was a big deal at the time, and Burke claimed, though, he didn't care. He and Helen commiserated over the bottle. Everyone else could be damned right along with him. Okay. They struggled mightily with finances and even spent a time in a beggar's hotel. Taking advantage of his brief tenure as a cobbler's apprentice, Burke collected old shoes, repaired, and resold them for a while to make ends meet for his new family. However, he drank much of his money away and began hanging out with a rather unsavory crowd. Things are looking up. Yeah. In the fall of 1827, 
After 10 years of struggle around Scotland, Burke and MacDougall moved into a rooming house in Tanner's Close, Portsburg, run by William and Margaret Hare. Hare had also been born in Ireland, but was nowhere near as, quote, well-bred or as educated as Burke. Okay, well-bred. Because <laughs> Burke didn't come off like that either. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, so. I guess, I guess he's the highest of the lower yes, class. Yes, the lower companions. Yeah. yeah. After leaving a life of farming in Ireland, he worked as a lumper on ships <laughs> in the Edinburgh Harbor. And lumping is something... <laughs> Shoving coal, I'm going to say? No, I've done, I've been a lumper. You've been a lumper? Yeah. What is a lumper? So essentially what it is, uh, uh, a friend Human of mine's father bump? was a uh, an engineer on a scallop dragger, and we got to go and lump the bags of scallops out of the boat. So it's oh, essentially okay. just somebody who moves stuff around. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Huh. So yes, I have that's, been a lumper. It's not as exciting as I was It isn't near no. as exciting. Hare lived with Margaret and her first husband in the rooming house, but was kicked out by uh, Margaret's husband after a fight with him. Immediately after Margaret's husband died, Hare came back, making advances on Margaret. She took him in, and they married in 1826. I wish my hair had come back. (laughs) Yeah, your hair's gone for good. Hare liked to drink too, as did his wife. So the two couples became fast friends. Okay. Around Christmas in 1827, a macabre opportunity presented itself to the pair. A pensioner, known only to history as Donald, passed away in his room in the Hare's house. He owed Hare money, four pounds, a tidy sum at the time. Mm -hmm. They didn't know any of Donald's relatives with whom they could collect on his debt. The man had been a veteran, so his funeral was paid for when Hare had an idea. He wanted to sell the body to the Edinburgh Medical School to offset the debt. I mean, I, I understand his logic. Don't necessarily agree with his logic. Mm-hmm. Directly from McGregor's book, The History of Burke and Hare and of the Resurrectionist Times, quote, Burke in his confession stated that Hare made the proposition to him, promising a share of the proceeds. After some hesitation, Burke agreed to the scheme, the coffin, which had been, quote, screwed down, was opened, and Tanner's bark substituted for the body, which was concealed in the bed. Thereafter, the coffin and its contents were carefully buried. Hmm. 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 They stowed the body at Hare's and went to Surgeon Square. Burke, the more savvy of the two, agreed to do the talking. While Hare lurked nearby, Burke spoke with one of Robert Knox's students, who told him that... The school would in fact buy a body. Depending on the condition of the corpse, Burke was told that he could expect as much as 10 pounds. Hmm, so we get the scale is dependent on the state of decomp. Yep. Burke returned to Hare, excited. The pair scurried back to Hare's house and tossed what remained of poor Donald into a sack and carried him back to the school. After the students inspected the old man's corpse, the creepy pair were given seven pounds and ten shillings for the body. And thus begins... Yep. Hare took four pounds and five shillings for himself and gave Burke three pounds, five shillings. Easiest money they'd ever made. So what if the students thought they were dirty resurrectionists? They'd established a relationship with a willing buyer and they knew they could make some money this way. Before they left the basement of the school, 
Burke asked, wouldn't you give a pound more for a fresh one? The student assured him they would. Oh. The fresher the better. There we go. See? I was on to it. Burke and Hare had some discussions about how to get more bodies. The graveyards were being watched. In fact, there were riots by upset families against the purchase of bodies by doctors at medical schools. The pre-buried ones were already moldering, as the practice of embalming was yet widespread at the time and seen as a luxury. Yeah, well. Burke decided he'd prowl Edinburgh, looking for people no one would miss and lure them back to Hare's house where the two could dispatch the person. <sighs> this sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. They'd then take a freshly killed corpse to Dr. Knox's students in the basement of the medical school and make away with the cash. As well, there was a steady stream of down-and-outers coming to the Hare rooming house. Ugh, Jesus. Rather than taking their chances on waiting for the next person to pass away naturally, they decided to hurry the process along for people with no families who cared about them. How kind of them, hurry the process along. Let me just, let me help you get to dying. Yeah. They knew they couldn't bash or shoot their victims. That would arouse suspicion. Yes, it would. Their method was going to be smothering. That looked the least like murder. <sighs> we'll take a break and come back with the murders at the hands of Burke and Hare and the aftermath. Oh, great. And we're back. In later confessions, the two differed on who was their first murder victim, a woman named Abigail Simpson from Glimmerton or a miller named Joseph. I guess we'll just start with Abigail. Sure. Alphabetically, that works. Why not? When Burke met her, Abigail was very drunk in the seedier part of Edinburgh called Grass Market. Not only was she hammered, she was old and feeble. Burke offered her more booze and lured her back to Hare's home. Burke and Hare were too drunk themselves to make the effort to kill Abigail that night. They let her sleep it off, and when she awoke, sick and hungover, Burke gave her a little hair of the dog, and Abigail was quickly drunk again. The men stayed sober. After everyone else in the house had left, it was just Abigail, Burke, and Hare. When she passed out, Hare covered Abigail's nose and mouth with his hand, and Burke laid on the woman to hold her still and prevent her from squirming out of Hare's grasp. Abigail died quickly, and Burke and Hare took her that night to the medical school, receiving ten pounds directly from Dr. Knox for the extremely fresh body, no questions asked. Yeah, okay. You would... Yeah. I, like, the doctor has got... they got it. Is this person related to you? No. How did you find? No. Well, I Wait, mean, so it's easier to just. I'm just not going to ask that way. Resurrectionists were bringing uh, in corpses, but this is bloody fresh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, sure. Yep. Well, could have been from a funeral home. Could have been. Yep. Yeah, could have been. Like freshly at the funeral home, or maybe it is someone they knew. Yeah. No, it could be a lot. And you know what? You don't ask. Then, then you don't then, know. Then you're not the bad guy. Right. The men celebrated their newfound wealth as they always did, drinking themselves stupid. 
The process of one man holding the victim down while the other did the smothering was called burking in the years after the crime. It was so well known, in fact, that a group of resurrectionists later turned murderers in London became known as the London Burkers. After killing a 14-year-old Italian boy, two of the group were hanged for that killing. Good. The next victim was Joseph the Miller. He was a sickly, older man already living in Hare's house when an infection and fever made him very ill. This time it was Burke who did the smothering with a pillow over the man's face. Hare was holding the man down as he gasped for air under Burke's hand. After he died, Joseph's body was packed up and sold to the medical students for another 10 pounds, again with no questions asked. So is there, like... Do you know what the pacing was in here? Like, was it... Um, there were 16 bodies in 10 months. Okay, so it's not like, you know, every day they got a new body. Because no. that you that would have to there would be raise some bells. eyebrows. Yeah, no. But they're still quite prolific. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's unclear how the two explained Joseph's disappearance from the house, but... The transient nature of its lodgers probably made it easy. Yep. All they'd have to say is that he'd moved on and they had no idea where he was yeah, going. Yeah. Like there was no way to track somebody who didn't have Facebook or anything like that. He didn't? It would be ye old Facebook. <laughs> ye old book of face. <laughs> Not making fun of uh, the dead man, but that's just the time. No, yeah. Yeah, it, it was... It, Back in the day, and actually not even that long ago, it was far easier to just disappear. And, exactly. And nobody would, nobody knows. So you wonder how many people were doing this kind of thing, but anyway. I, I hadn't until now. <laughs> in early spring 1928, another older and sickly man, known only as an Englishman and a native of Cheshire, met the same fate as Joseph in a bed in the Tanner's Close rooming house. Another eight pounds. Hmm. The next murder was that of an anonymous drunken, quote, old woman who'd been lured to the house by Margaret Hare with the promise of more drink. Passed out in a room upstairs, this time perhaps alone, Hare suffocated the woman with a feather mattress. It's unknown how involved Margaret and Helen were in Hare and Burke's practices, but this story is telling. That night, the old woman's corpse made the pair another ten pounds. There's a... Uh, a component of the boozing barber in here and how they're using uh, leveraging alcohol, alcohol Very to much so. uh, be yep. a key factor in, in their murders. And that continues, and I was thinking that too. So if you haven't heard our episode on the boozing barber, you might want to go back and it, listen yeah. to that. Yeah. Mary Patterson was much younger than the previous victims, but she was also well-known on the streets of Edinburgh as a drunkard and... Uh, someone of ill repute. Burke and Hare attended a party at a nearby house uh, and identified Mary as their next victim, giving her enough alcohol to make her pass out. Yeah, there we go. Burke suggested to everyone at the party, including Hare's wife and Burke's partner, Helen McDougall, that they should all go out to a pub and continue drinking. <sighs> Leaving the pub, Burke and Hare went back and did their thing murdering the drunk girl as she slept. Just hours later, Burke and Hare had Mary's body in Dr. Knox's classroom, where they got more cash. Due to Mary's age, they were asked where they'd gotten her. Burke told them they'd bought her from an old woman. 
The doctor bought the story and sent them on their way, money in hand. Ugh, it's quite the trade they've got going here. Mary was just an, another unfortunate who disappeared while living a dangerous lifestyle. Yep, yep, preying on the, the uh, underprivileged. Mm-hmm. Just like Picton or... Yeah, 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 it still goes on to this day. Yep. Uh, they go after, a lot of killers go after sex workers, uh, yep. indigenous folk, because the feeling is... No one's going to miss them. Yeah. yeah, but it's not true. Lots of people miss those people. Anyway, but society just doesn't deal with it the same way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. From Lisa Rosner's The Anatomy Murders, quote, Sometime during the spring of 1828, a stout old woman, Elizabeth Haldane, turned up at Margaret Hare's lodging house in Tanner's Close. According to Burke, she, quote, had but one tooth in her mouth, and that was a very large one in front, end quote. Further on, Burke, quote, found her sleeping among some straw in Hare's stable. She had got some drink at the time, Burke said, and got more to intoxicate her. And he and Hare suffocated her. They kept her in the stable overnight and took her to Dr. Knox's the next day, end quote. Yeah, they're getting extremely comfortable with this. No, it doesn't even seem like they're batting an eye. No. No, it was their, that was the way they were making their living. Yeah. I mean, 10 pounds um, every month or more is quite a decent living. Oh, back yeah? In that, yeah. In a weird twist, a few months later, Elizabeth Haldane's daughter, Margaret, also a drunk, was murdered by Burke alone. She'd spent the day drinking with him. When she passed out face down on the bed, Burke laid on top of her and pressed her face hard into the mattress, suffocating her. Another drunken possible sex worker was dead, and no one cared, especially not Burke and Hare, nor did Dr. Knox, who paid eight pounds for her corpse without question. <laughs> you getting frustrated oh, yet? Yeah, quite. Well, there's more to come. Oh, great. After getting another woman called Effie the Cinder Gatherer drunk in the hay of Hare's stable, the pair did their usual thing to her after she passed out. Once again, they were paid 10 pounds for the fresh corpse by Dr. Knox and his students. <sighs> From Lisa Rosner's The Anatomy Murders, quote, In late June, around midsummer, as Burke remembered, an old woman came from Glasgow with her grandson, a, quote, dumb boy, about 12 years old, who, quote, seemed to be weak in his mind, end quote. Once lodged at Margaret Hare's house, the woman got a dram of whiskey and fell asleep, and Burke and Hare suffocated her, removed her clothes, and covered her with the bedding, end quote. <sighs> this gets worse here. Oh, outstanding. The pair later did the same to the boy after he fell asleep. Burke admitted that the murder of the boy had bothered him. The bodies were later sold to Knox, but as the bodies were in rigor mortis on arrival, they only got 16 pounds for the pair. They thought they were going to make more money, mm -hmm. but they did not. While Burke was away visiting family, Hare murdered another anonymous drunken woman all by himself in late June or early July of 1828. Her body fetched eight pounds. Burke found out that Hare had killed without him and flew into a rage. The two of them fought. Burke was upset that he'd been left out of the money. Well, there's got to be ethics amongst murderers, Mike. 
There has to I be. I mean, come on. You don't do that to a friend. You don't murder without them involved. Yeah, like, who do you think just, you are? It's just not cool. Yeah. Although they had had a falling out, they still had killing to do. Mm, okay. It was at this point that Burke and Helen McDougal moved out. They went to live with John Brogan, Burke's cousin who ran a boarding house two blocks away. Even after their scrap, Burke and Hare got really brazen that summer. Oh, boy. From Lisa Rosner's The Anatomy Murders, quote, They saw one opportunity in a drunk woman being dragged to the Westport Watch House by two policemen. Burke, seeing them, said, Let the woman go to her lodgings. The officer said they did not know where she lodged, to which Burke responded, He would take her to her lodgings. They gave her to his charge, and he took her to Hare's house. Burke said that they murdered her in the same way as they did the others and got 10 pounds from Dr. Knox at Surgeon Square. My God, so the police... Took it right out of the police's hands. So, like, I, I again, different times, I get that every time, I get it, I get it, I get it. But we've got a really intoxicated woman over here. Hey, no problem. I'll take her home. I know, yeah, exactly. And it's like, sure, here you go. Like, even without the murder part, that's still wrong. And the cops even knew who he was. It, it, they didn't just give him to a stranger. They knew he was William Burke. Yeah. But they didn't know what he was up to. Hey, that drunken girl? I'll take her home. I'll take it. Yeah. It's like, fine. It'll be fine. Like, fuck's sake. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> okay, continue. In September, the pair murdered a local washerwoman named Mrs. Hostler. They'd gotten her drunk and lured her to bed. Yeah. They smothered her there in the usual way and got eight pounds for her body that day. She was a washerwoman in a, in, a next, in a house nearby, and people were, like, wondering where she was. They didn't know that she had been with them, though. Yeah, yeah. But they're getting a bit more um, careless, mm-hmm. a, as you find a lot of serial killers, murderers end up doing. Um, a lot of what I've listened to lately, I've been interviewing some people who are actually specialists in psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did last night, actually. And what they refer to is that it's not these guys want to get caught. Their sloppiness is due to the narcissism that develops. No, that's what I've often thought, is that it's mm-hmm. the, the carelessness comes to the fact of, like, I'm, it, I'm too good at this. The, I, I can't get caught. Yeah. I can even start to, like, I can start to go close. People won't even know. Yep. And that's probably exactly what was going on. Yeah. The next victim, Anne McDougall, was a cousin of Helen McDougall's dead husband. She came for a visit. Burke got her drunk, and when she passed out, Burke and Hare discussed their roles in her murder. Burke felt guilty, as this woman was a relation of sorts. Mm. So Hare was to do the burking, and Burke laid on top of her. What a considerate gentleman. He did the burking. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> they received 10 pounds from Knox for mm-hmm. Anne McDougall. Yep, sure. A man named Daft Jamie Wilson was well known for wandering around Edinburgh. It's not, not the most flattering nickname. No, we'll get into that. Today, James might have been diagnosed as a person with cognitive and intellectual disabilities. Oh, okay. He was well known around Edinburgh, and, and he had people who cared for him. His mother was still living, and he boarded at his sister's house. Okay. So lots of people knew. He was kind of like 
uh, a fixture in the town. Yeah, that yeah. People knew who he was. And sound, it sounds like uh, looked after him in regards to 100%. Make, make sure he's all right. And even other people looked after him and fed him and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. So he wasn't a down and out. Like, yep. But he was still a target for these guys. He would be missed and didn't fit their usual victim profile for the two practiced serial killers. But as psychopaths do, their needs were evolving. Simple murder of strangers and the lesser known was not exactly a challenge for them anymore. Exactly. Hare lured Jamie back to the Tanner's close rooming house one morning with the promise of drink. Margaret Hare left the house when Burke arrived, knowing full well the fate that she was leaving for the young man. <sighs> From Lisa Rosner's The Anatomy Murders, quote, At some point, Jamie lay down in the bed and Hare lay down next to him. When they laid there for some time, according to Burke, Hare threw his body on top of Jamie, pressed his hand to his mouth, and held his nose with the other. Hare and him fell off the bed and struggled. Mm. Burke then held his hands and feet. They never quitted their grip until he was dead. He never got up or cried any. It was about 12 noon by the time they were finished. Nice poor guy. They took the body to the medical school's basement and were given four pounds with the promise of more after Knox had examined the corpse the next day. Interesting. Next morning, one of the students yelled on seeing the corpse, That's daft Jamie! Uh-oh. Some others said they couldn't be sure. Knox ordered the corpse readied for dissection and it was taken apart to the point it was unrecognizable. Okay. So even though somebody's claiming to recognize, the doc is still, well, uh, let's move forward. Five days later, after rumors flew and Jamie was nowhere else to be found, police came calling at the medical school. Mm -hmm. No one except the initial student was willing to swear that it had in fact been the corpse of Jamie Wilson. Jamie had, according to his family, very distinctive feet. Oh. Those feet were missing. Oh. They were taken off quote, to facilitate dissection of the legs. No one knew where they were, and some suspected that Knox himself had recognized Jamie and done away with the evidence to cover up what he knew was a crime. That does make sense. Oddly, Knox had kept Jamie's flesh-stripped cranium in his collection of body parts. Mm. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah, weird doctor. Yes. The police had nothing but speculation to go on, and Jamie Wilson was still missing and never seen again. That's poor Jamie. Poor, poor Jamie. The final victim, a middle-aged Irish woman named Margaret Doherty, in a macabre twist, was murdered on October 31st, 1828, All Hallows' Eve. Mm -hmm. Once again, Burke used his charm on the woman, claiming that they may be related and that his mother's family was from the same part of Ireland that she was. Margaret came back to Burke's room at the Brogan rooming house, where they drank with Helen McDougall and Mr. and Mrs. Hare, who arrived for the evening's festivities. Another couple named Gray, also lodging in the house, saw the two couples and Margaret drinking away and dancing as they left. The reason they left... Burke had paid for them to go and stay at the Hare House hmm. for the evening, leaving the Brogan House free of other witnesses 
to what was about to happen. Alrighty. Margaret was murdered and stuffed into the straw mattress at the end of the bed. Before there was a chance to remove the body, the Greys came back and discovered Margaret Doherty where Burke and Hare had left her. Oh no. The Greys ran off to the police and Burke and Hare took Margaret's body to the medical school to get rid of it. Okay, but not after after it had been found. So. Right. Okay. Police arrived to find Margaret's clothing under the bed that she'd been murdered on. Burke and his wife couldn't get their story straight, so they were arrested. Mm, good. Under questioning, just enough of the story came out about the medical school and the cadavers. The next day, Mr. Gray ID'd Margaret Doherty at the dissection room as the woman he'd seen at the Brogan rooming house. Huh. Burke and Hare were arrested and held. The jig is up. No kidding. <laughs> it just took that one screw up. And, yeah. And that's that. Yeah. Watching now, I'm thinking about those two officers who, hey, you want a drunk girl? And they must all oh, can't imagine how bad they would feel if they even again. There's no, you, it's not like you'd see well, the Burke Facebook admitted story to or it. something. Burke admitted to it, and it's a small, like Edinburgh yeah. wasn't yeah. gigantic, yeah. so they it would have gotten back to them. Yeah, that's true. Hare was oddly offered immunity in exchange for telling the whole story. I know, right? Uh, yeah, even Burke himself talked, but it did him no good. William Burke was found guilty and sentenced to hang with a particularly odd order to follow his death. Oh, do tell. Quote, your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized. And I trust if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. End quote. It's a pretty vengeful judge, but I kind of like it. Right? Kind of like, like it. You yeah. are going to pay and pay yeah. Yeah. and pay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, good on you, Judge. Dr. Robert Knox was never charged with any crime thanks to Burke's testimony. Hmm. So Burke pretty much said he didn't know what he was doing. They never really talked about it, so. Yeah, yeah okay. I think so. Yeah. yeah. But Knox was not the respected man that he'd once been. Yeah. Helen McDougall and Mrs. Hare went free as well. On the 28th of January, Burke was hanged in front of a crowd of 25,000. Holy shit. Yeah, so a lot of people showed up to see him get his just desserts. Like, that's a whole other podcast, but, like, yeah, public executions. I just don't, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Carol's uh, great-grandmother used to go and watch them hang horse thieves back in Colma, Alberta, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean... There, there is uh, something to it, though. I remember Phil Donahue, he was a big advocate. He wanted executions oh. to be publicly televised. But Why? his rationale, which I totally get in support, was he's like, if you guys think as a culture it's okay for us to murder, it's okay for us to execute people, you need to see what you're approving. You need to see what, if you think it's okay that we do this, you need to watch and then tell me you think it's okay. Yeah. So that that was his rationale, which I, 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 get, I can get behind. So from an 1829 news report on the day of Burke's execution, quote, the executioner having completed his preparations and placed the signal in Burke's hand, and the signal is a napkin that he would drop indicating he was through praying and ready to die. Oh. The magistrates, ministers, and attendants left the scaffold. The crowd again set up another long and loud cheer, which was followed by cries for Hare, 
hair, where is hair, hang hair, mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Burke lifted his hands and ejaculated a prayer of a few sentences. The napkin dropped, and momentarily the drop fell. The struggle was neither long nor apparently severe, but at every convulsive motion a loud huzzah arose from the multitude which was several times repeated even after the last agonies of humanity were passed. During the time of the wretched man's suspension, not a single indication of pity was observable among the vast crowd, end quote. Yeah, so as much as I said I wanted to see them hang, like it... It feels weird. I, it, it, it feels very weird, and especially people cheering and enjoying and... Like it's a sporting event. Your team just won. It's yeah. very, 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 very uncomfortable. It's disturbing. It It is. Yeah. Burke's body was publicly dissected on February 1st. His skeleton is still on display at the Anatomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School. I was hoping you were going to say that. Really? Yeah. Why, why so? That was just a morbid fascination about the fact that, like, that judge's order is still being upheld. Yep. Like, that's quite fascinating. Yep. You like Because you, you would think that maybe at some point throughout history, somebody would be like, you know what? Like, this isn't uh, nah, it's okay. Just, it's just a matter of history now, though. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of why I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. So if I ever go to Edinburgh, I'm for, for sure going oh, to check yeah, that out. Oh, yeah, yeah. You have to. You have to. You have to see that. Yeah. Uh, Hare went free on February 5th, 1829. An angry crowd, hearing he was living in a rooming house in Dumfries, called for his head. He escaped out a back window and scampered off into the night. He was taken in by t- the town's police and sent on his way toward the English b- border. I'm envisioning, like, literally uh, torches and pitchforks. Pretty much. Yeah. It's unclear what became of him. He was never definitively seen again. Mm. Probably went somewhere, changed his name, maybe even took a boat to America or something. Yeah, I I mean, back then, the only thing you had to do to change your name is say, hey, my name's Stuart. He's probably my great-grandfather or something. (laughs) After the crimes, a rhyme made its way around Edinburgh. Up the close and doon the stair, butt and bin with birken hair. Burks the butcher, hairs the thief, knocks the boy that buys the beef. Hmm. Well, effective in yeah. regards to a rhyme. Yeah. Uh, morbid. That morbid. Yeah, morbid. A little morbid. Morbid. Knocks the boy that buys the beef. Yep. In 1832, <laughs> the Anatomy Act was passed in no small part due to the attention these crimes brought. From Wikipedia... Quote, the Anatomy Act provided for the needs of physicians, surgeons, and students by giving them legal access to corpses that were unclaimed after death. In particular, corpses of those who had died in hospital, prison, or a workhouse. Further, a person could donate the corpse of a next of kin in exchange for burial at the expense of the anatomy school. Occasionally, a person following the example of Jeremy Bentham left their own body for dissection in the name of advancement of science. But even then, if the person's relatives objected, it was not received, end quote. Seriously, I'm totally okay with my body being used for science. 
Yeah, I'm good fi- with it. Finally, my body does some good <laughs> to somebody. To somebody. Or and give my organs to everybody. And the passing of the Anatomy Act is the law that allowed for research leading to the most well-known book on the subject, Gray's Anatomy, uh-uh. which was published in 1859. Mm, never watched the show. It's not that. It's oh. not the show. It's the book. Oh, okay. I've got the book over there if you want to have a look at it. Mm, yeah, maybe another time. Maybe another time. It's fascinating reading. Mm-hmm. And so that's it for this week's story and another away game. So what do you think of Burke and Hare? Oh, I think they're sacks of shit. <laughs> do you? Yeah, I I think so. I'm going to go on a limb here and say that they're they are not good people. It, but I, a- you know what I before you go on, mm-hmm. what I sort of wanted to mention that isn't really mentioned in anything uh, literature wise that I saw. They were luring some of these women to bed. There's a sexual component of it. It, it. I definitely got the sense as you're telling, uh, I, not necessarily that I get the sense of a sexual component, but I got the sense of they are enjoying this. It's more than just mm-hmm. a, a it, I, I feel it was more than just a means to an end. That they were getting pleasure, they were getting satisfaction yeah. from this. Yeah. As serial killers do. Yeah, exactly. Because there was one one where I think it was that 12-year-old boy, and I I think it was uh, Burke who said, um, felt I a felt guilty. a little guilty. Yeah. Implying, oh, you didn't feel guilty about the other ones. No. So, I mean, Not like, you know. And he felt a little bit of a twinge of guilt about yeah. the lady who was related to him. Yeah, a twinge. Just a twinge. A twinge, yeah. yeah. How courteous. Pretty terrible Gentlemen, but yeah. it's it's a story that I've wanted to tell for a long time, and it's a uh, good one. Yeah, as it, an away yeah. game, I thought it was kind of a perfect one to tell. Yeah, but uh, oof, woof indeed. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we'll put post a lot of uh, uh, we'll post a lot of links to our source material in um, our show notes. Yeah. There's some interesting stuff. There was a documentary there that I, I watched uh, oh, after that? I was done writing. So, yeah. um, you know, I don't know how accurate some of it is, but it's it's interesting watching. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So there you go. That's it. So on to the Patreon shoutouts for this week. Drum roll. Drum roll. Big old drum roll. Big old drum roll. That's First up, we have Sky Mizalaiskis. Hey, well, welcome, Sky. And Sky is from Hinton, Alberta, and I think I might have slaughtered that, but I yeah, tried. You, you did. A valiant effort. Valiant effort. Vince Zuppa from Chicago, Illinois. Vince, Vince, Vince. Thanks, Vince. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. Another uh-huh. PM. What? From Stony Creek, Ontario, it's Ashley Coors. Holy crackers. Ashley, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. And here we have uh, Cyrus and Lindsay Torchinsky. Oh. And they're from San Diego, California. I love San Diego. Beautiful I've never been, never been. I'd like to. And I'll go hang out with uh, Cyrus and Lindsay. Yeah, it sounds great. It does. Okay, so here we have one that I don't quite recognize this language. (laughs) Because there's a letter in here that looks like a P, but it's not really a P. So it's Perlindor Johansson, and they are from... Sudorns in Iceland. Wow. That is our first Iceland. Icelandic. Wait huh? for it. Uh-huh. Our first Icelandic prime minister. What? What the? What is happening? So 
I know I slaughtered your name, and I am very, very sorry, but we are so grateful that you have decided to support us in this way. Oh, so, my goodness, are we ever... So, I, actually, I, it looks like Thorlinder. Uh, so, I think it might be Thorlinder. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, we, we slaughtered your name, so... <laughs> But we really appreciate it. I love Iceland. I am blown away that somebody in Iceland is listening. Yeah, because what are there, like four people there? No, there's more than that. So we got like a quarter of the population listening to us. I guess so. It's pretty dope. (laughs) You're a terrible person. Yeah, terribly great. Rebecca Manners. Oh! From Reston, Virginia. Uh Uh-huh, don't mind your manners. (laughs) Jess Huey from Clemson, South Carolina. Oh, Clemson. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Jess. And here we have somebody whose name is just Sam. Sam, yeah. Sam from Spuzzum. Spuzzum? Yep. British Columbia. Spuzzum, B.C., yep. And what does Sam do in Spuzzum, B.C.? Sam is the person who... Spuzzum, for those who don't know, is tiny. The joke is, oh, if you blink, you'll miss it. It's like a population of like 18 or something. So what Sam's job is, is to keep the population number count on... On the sign. Yeah, on the sign. Well, that's a great job. Yep. Is Sam very busy with that? Well, yeah, because even if you're just driving through for that brief moment, you are oh, technically you... part of the population. So Sam has to run out and put the, uh, yeah. the number up. It's a much more hectic job. And if it's a bus, time. that's very pl- problematic. Holy shit, yeah, he's got to make a lot of assumptions. And then quickly change it. Exactly. Like, it's, yeah, it's not it's not the best. I think Sam is female, by the way. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you know. I don't Why were you calling her he? It was you that called her he. I don't think it was. Next up, we have Destiny Garcia from Clearfield, Utah. Hey, Destiny, thank you. Well, maybe she listens to me on Salt and on the radio in Salt Lake City now because oh. I'm on that KCAA there. Uh, yes, you are. Yeah, uh, Laura T. Garden, and she's from Ris- Riverside, California. What a name, T. Garden. Yeah, it's a pretty name. That is awesome. I like that. It just makes my heart warm. You just want to go have tea in the garden. I do. With Laura. I do. In Riverside, California. Specifically there. (laughs) Because that's where she'd be. Exactly. Yeah. You're figuring it out. I'm picking up what you're throwing down. We have Lily Ann Brady Gill. That was a lot of names. Yes. And she has a lot of names, but she doesn't have a place. She doesn't? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. That's tragic. Well... You want me to tell you where she lives? Because no, I, I know. Really? I do. Yeah, I okay. know. I know. Let me see if you're right. I know where everybody lives. Okay, where this, does she? This live? should be known by now. Where does Lillian live? Lillian lives in Tennessee. Oh, in Tennessee. Yeah. Which part? Central. Memphis or Nashville? Both. Okay. Yeah. Scott's trying. She lives in both. And what does she do there? Uh, so she commutes. She commutes. Well, that's what she does. Oh, she's a commuter. She's, she's a professional commuter. Oh, people wow. don't. People. That's not. It's an under. Uh, so eight hours a day she commutes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. It's, it's. So what does she do with the rest of her day? Uh, she's at home just like the rest of us. So she commutes some somewhere around. She does four hours in co- one direction uh, and then four hours in the in another direction. Well, she she probably has to stop for lunch at some point. Well, she gets a lunch break. Yeah, for sure. Does it matter which direction she goes it's up, in? That's up to her, man. That's up to her. Oh, it's a creative job. It, it is. She, they get a lot of, there's a lot of freedom in it, for sure. For man, sure. I want to be not, a not a lot of supervisory uh, uh, watchings. Well, there you go. Yeah. 
uh, Hannah Redeb from Libertyville, Illinois. That's the sound of freedom. Liberty. Liberty. Liberty, liberty, liberty. <laughs> no, Grace, so now we're doing spoken infomercials. Oh, no. Uh, Vanessa Esau from Okotoks, Alberta. Hey, well, thank you, Vanessa. Uh, Harry D. Richardson from Vail, Arizona. Wasn't, isn't that, uh, wasn't that the start of Night Court? That's Harry Anderson. Oh, yeah. It's close enough. Yeah, he did magic tricks, too. Yeah, he did. He loved magic. And he's dead. Mm. Mm, sorry for bringing that up. <laughs> Angela Scoreco from Barhead, Alberta. We're growing in Albertas. Yeah, Albertans are uh, becoming quickly becoming actually our one of our biggest supporters. Yeah. So all you other provinces out there. After like episode three, when you shit on, on Edmonton, and it's like Alberta's now like. Well, I think it's because we have apologized to Alberta profusely. We have, and we have done some good shows about Albertan crimes. We have. We have. And we, we cover them um, with reverence, like we do any other crime, and we're not making fun of the flames. No. Well, come hockey season. I just might. Yeah, I'm not saying anymore. So there we go. Those are our Patreons. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, it's pretty crazy. It keeps growing. It does keep growing, and I'm, I'm very happy with that. As am I. So thank you, folks. And we did send out our... Uh, our stickers and thank you notes this week. I Carol saw, and I, I, we, yeah, I saw Carol's post. Spent uh, three hundred and fifty bucks on um, shipping. On shipping, holy crackers! <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, oh, yeah. but uh, it's well worth it. So people yep. should be getting by the time they're hearing this podcast, they might may have already gotten their little thank you note or something. Just post it in the Umbriard if you uh, yeah if you get something from us. It's always nice to see that they've arrived. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, we sent out a bunch. It was very fun. Losing steam, are you? I'm losing steam. I'm, f- I'm feeling a little tired, Scott. Yeah, I was too. writing all day. I did some radio today. Huh. Uh, I have to do some radio tomorrow. I did radio the day before. <laughs> you need to. You need to. I need more things. You need to pick up the pace a bit, Mike. Well, I was thinking about taking a break next week, but I'm not. <laughs> so uh, that be- didn't last long. No, I can't. There's there's a reason why I can't, but I just can't. All right, so we got some donut money from Melissa Brene. <gasps> Melissa Brene. Melissa. Melissa. She says, "Hi, Mike and Scott. Thank you for making such great content. If you ever find yourself in the city of Greater Sudbury, let me know." My family and I will be happy to show you guys what Stomp and Tom meant by Sud- Sudbury Saturday night. You guys are awesome. Well, <laughs> thank sounds- you, Melissa, or Brunette, or Brune. I think it's Brunet because it's only one T. Well, we're definitely going to... Uh, if we go to Sudbury, that's an offer we can't refuse. That is actually a great offer. I would I would love to see what a, a, a real subs, uh, Sudbury, Sudbury Saturday, Saturday night. night is. And here's one from Kevin McCoy, and he's from Atlanta, Georgia. What? And he just says, y'all go shit in your hat. That's one of the few places I've been in this world. Yeah, I've been to Atlanta, too. Yeah. I oh, like yeah, I, you I, and I were both there. Yep. Oh, that's right. We were in Atlanta together. We were. How about them apples? Oh, heartwarming. <laughs> I guess it was warm. Definitely it was warm. <laughs> uh, and 
also, we got some donut money from Terry Bell, and she didn't send us a message. Which is okay. Which is just fine. It's just fine. Thank you so much, Terry Bell. Terry, you rock. Where do you think Terry's from? It looks like she might be from Canada, according to her email address. Oh, is it a .ca or? Yeah, we're not saying where, but... You oh, know, no, I just... Yeah, but yeah. it's Canada. Sure. Yeah. So she... I, I think she's from... Um... Terry Bell. That's a Nova Scotian or Newfoundland name. Do you I think would, so? I would think so. Yeah? Yeah, there's a lot of bells back there. Oh. I went to school with a bunch. Oh, like the ringy dingy kind? Not the ringy dingy kind. Oh. They, their name was just Bell. Oh, uh, well, okay, not uh, yeah. makes more sense. I went to school with somebody named Outhouse too. You did not. Yeah, her last name was Outhouse. Oh my God! But nobody ever gave her a hard time. What a wonderful place you lived. No, people gave the guy named Elvis a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Terry Bell. And if you're not from Nova Scotia or any other of those places, we're sorry, but. You didn't let us know where you're from. You should be from there. <laughs> sure, why not? Yeah. Why the heck not? Exactly. Uh, hmm. So thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. Thank you for your donut money and any other love that you give us. We really appreciate your support of the show. So very much. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for one-time support, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Somebody sent me an email today, and I'm, I'm not making fun of them. Okay. They sent me an email asking what is the best place to contact you. Yeah, I that's I, I'm going to be nice. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like or a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. And most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Even words from mouth. Words from mouth. Mm-hmm. Words from under your nose holes. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Guten Tag. Sprechen's the German. Sprechen's the Deutsch. <laughs>